0: Zach Eswine shares a story of his three children, and each were holding a plastic cup. And the 10-year-old, his oldest, uh, poured imaginary water into the cups of the other two, his eight-year-old and his two-year-old, and he makes the water pouring sound. I don't know how to make a water pouring sound with my mouth, so I won't do that. But the eight-year-old picks up on the game and he lifts the imaginary water to his mouth and he drinks it all down, and he ends with a "ah!" <sighs> now the two-year-old is puzzled, and he's looking down in this cup, and he's looking at every corner of the cup, and he's like, "What's going on?" And so in this cute little two-year-old voice, he says, "Real. real!" After repeated protests, the 10 year old finally goes to the sink, gets a little bit of real water, and pours it into the the cup of the two year old. And he gets this big grin on his face. He runs to his dad and he says, Real, daddy, real. On April 8th, uh, 1966, the cover of Time magazine read, Is God dead? And it was the, the sentiment or the a reflection of a sentiment uh, of a larger society that wanted to know if Christianity was pouring imaginary water into people's cups, and that they were all just pretending to be satisfied. The salvation story was doubted. And it's thought, and many think today, that the Bible can no longer account for the harsher, more complex realities of life. Is God dead? That was the question. Um, I'll never forget my days at Texas State University. Go Bobcats, Southwest Texas. It was called Southwest Texas back in the day when I was there many, many moons ago. And I was in Philosophy 1310. Dr. Zhu was my professor, and his claim to an auditorium filled with about 300 students was, if you believe the claims of the Bible, you're a fool and an idiot. And so for 15 weeks, he evangelized us into his worldview, into his belief system. Now. I was already a Christian. I made a decision late in high school years to follow Christ. But the constant barrage of doubt-inducing questions led me into what I would call a crisis of faith. Have you ever had a crisis of faith before? Right? Where you're kind of like, is this for real? Like, I'm just doubting everything. And unfortunately fortunately there was a girl that sat behind me that was a part of a college ministry that I was a part of and she would kick my chair every time the professor would say something derogatory about Christianity so I'd feel the kick and that was her way of saying do something man up okay Here I am, I'm like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. I'm not sure, like, all the fallacies that he's, you know, listing, and and what I'm going to say is going to be totally nonsense, but I would just raise my hand every time she'd kick my chair. So she kicked the chair, my hand goes up, and I don't remember what I would say. It was something to the effect of, I don't agree with what you just said, (laughs) because that's about all I had at the moment. But it led me into a crisis of faith, and I was going to church, active in a college ministry. I was singing the songs, and I was listening to the the sermons. I was serving on Sunday morning, and I was wondering, are we just pouring imaginary water into, into each other's cups and pretending to be satisfied? Is this for real? And my hunch is that every one of you wants the real. You're like that two-year-old that, that cry on you. It's like real, real, because we live real lives. We have real decisions that we're making that have real consequences for us and our, our children, our families, our loved ones. We have real struggles. We have real sins. We have real regrets. We face real tragedies. I lost my mom to cancer last week. We, we face real stuff. And if this is just imaginary water, I'm not interested. The Bible says that we're wasting our time if Jesus is not risen from the dead. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Wow. The Bible says that preaching is useless if Jesus isn't raised. In verse 17 of that chapter, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Meaning this, if Jesus isn't really alive, like really, then we're wasting our time. And and we're just pretending to be satisfied with imaginary water. So in light of our need for the real, in response to our need for a real savior right i'm gonna read a real account recorded by real people at a real time in place in human history in fact the the title of my sermon today is a real savior a real savior if you want to turn with with me to matthew 28 that's going to be our text today we're going to start in verse 1 And I'm going to read through uh, verse 17, 1 through 17. I've got it on the screens for you. You can follow along with me there as well. Here's what it says. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the woman, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I've told you. Verse eight. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. After the priest had assembled with the elders, agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they were instructed, and the story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day, verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. This is the word of the Lord. So here we have this account And as we um, spend the next few minutes together, I just want to draw our attention to the realness of what we just read. The realness of what we just read. The first thing that I want you to consider is the realness of the account. Consider the realness of the account. Now, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Not a trick question. Matthew, (laughs) also called Levi, he was a tax collector that uh, became a follower of Jesus. And he wrote this account within 20 to 30 years of Jesus raising from the dead. Now that's significant. Because in in view of history, writing something within 20 years of an event is plausible. It's verifiable. Today, people are writing books about the 9-11 attacks on our nation. Right? A horrific event that all of us remember, we, we remember that day, some of you saw it on TV. And so when a person writes a book about that, we can say, well, it's plausible that, that they were there, that they saw these things, that, that they, they have a verifiable story because it's within a certain time range of when the events happened. So it's important for us to understand that Matthew's writing this within 20 to 30 years, which lends towards its reliability, its authenticity, its realness. The second thing I want you to understand about the realness of the account is that all four Gospels include this one detail, which is that the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus were female. Now I know that as modern readers, that just kind of like we kind of skip over that detail because like okay whatever it's the ladies, but you need to understand something. In that time period, a woman's testimony was not admitted into a court of law. In fact, uh, the, the the Talmud that dates back to this time period, their law stated that a woman was not to be considered a competent. Witness Now today, in our modern world, women are employed and respected in virtually every field under the sun. So that doesn't quite compute for our Western American eyes. But in that day, if there was a crime, and the only people to see it were ladies, a judge could say, well, how do we know it even happened? Now ladies, do you feel the blessing of God? that the very first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus were female. The ones that are supposed to go and take that message to the disciples were ladies. What a beautiful blessing. What a beautiful blessing. But I do want you to understand that if the disciples were going to make up a story like the chief priests want everyone to believe... They're not going to include that the first witnesses of the resurrection were female because in that time period, nobody would have bought that story. It wouldn't have served them well. So that detail, it lends to the authenticity, the realness of the account. We have 20 to 30 years. We have these first witnesses being ladies. But the second thing that I want you to consider is the realness of the people. Now, what I love about the Bible is how you read the, the stories and the characters, and you see the disciples of Jesus, and they do all the stuff that we would do, right? right? They, they have personalities, and they have gifts and strengths, but they also have struggles. They have doubt. They're slow to believe They have their betrayals even of Jesus. You know the story of Peter and the rooster and you're going to deny me three times. They betrayed him. They act just like real people. Just like we would act if we were in their shoes. And in Matthew 20, Jesus tells his disciples for the third time, what's going to happen? He says, look guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be handed over and crucified. I'm going to die. But then I'm going to raise again three days later. He tells them this three times. And yet, when you read the story, it strikes you that they were genuinely surprised that it happened. Am I right? I mean, they're totally surprised. I mean, they're not waiting outside the tomb on day three like, this is the day. It's going to happen. Guys, remember what he talked about? Like, we're waiting. They weren't like camped outside, like waiting for the ground to shake. They were holed up in a room somewhere, and they were filled with grief and fear and sadness. They were genuinely, genuinely surprised. Again, If I were fabricating the story, I would paint myself in the best possible light. If I'm going to be the leader of a new religion that we're going to create, oh, man, if someone's going to to be thrown under the bus, it's not going to be me, right? So I'm going to say, you know, Chris immediately believed God. And he proclaimed, far be it from me to ever doubt a word that our Lord ever spoke, right? I mean, because you want everyone to think you're awesome, But the account says in verse 17, even as they see the resurrected Jesus, some doubted. Real people, just like you, just like me. Then we have the big cover up. The people with power to lose are paying off soldiers to spin the story in their favor. That never happens in our day, right? Never. Fake news? No. Like not, that, that's not real. That never happens. Before the dawn of social media? No way. Or as Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. All of it's kind of sounding pretty real to me. I don't know about you. Right? Real account with real people. But lastly, I want you to consider the real time and place of these events. The passage begins after the Sabbath, Saturday, As the first day of the week was dawning Sunday, the women go to the tomb. Now, that's pretty specific for people at this time. They didn't have sundials on their wrists, like measuring everything in hours and minutes and seconds like we do. They didn't have a a phone that was like, oh, time to go embalm the body today. No, it's like they just knew it was the morning. The Gospels harmoniously agree that Jesus died Friday afternoon. He was raised early on Sunday morning, meaning that he stayed in there just long enough to call it three days. It's like me on a three-day fast. I'm like, I'm ready to end it as soon as we can, like, really call it three days. Not a full 36 hours like we think of. That's not how they thought of time in that day. He rose on the third day on a Sunday. Just as soon as he could get up and get out of there, he did. But what strikes us is that it's an account of a real day in a real time, all coinciding with a Jewish holiday that everybody would know about, Passover. People were there in Jerusalem celebrating this big day, and they could say, no, no, this happened around Passover. People are like, I remember that day. I remember that day, a real time. But think about the place, Jerusalem, the most populous city of Israel. It's, it's the town where just a few uh, you know days, month later, Pentecost happens, and, and the Spirit of God blows like a mighty rushing wind, and the church is born in Jerusalem. And so the movement, whose central claim was that Jesus rose from the dead, starts in the same city where Jesus rose from the dead. That, that's, like, that's like God choosing to reveal the resurrection in New York City, population 8.5 plus million people, versus Lost Springs, Wyoming, population four. It's like he picks the city where everyone's going to be and where anyone could have said, no, 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 no. Uh, that's, that's crazy talk because his tomb's right there and his bones are right there. I mean, anyone could have come and said, no, this is, this is not real. It's not real. But that's not what happens. 3,000 people are born again in faith. And a church is birthed. And the movement of Jesus begins, the very movement that we're a part of right now. A real account of real people, in a real time in place. And all of it points to a real Savior, a Savior who was really dead, crucified for our sins. Uh, On Tuesday night of last week, my mom passed away. We were um, here in Houston. We'd gotten the call that she was declining Casey hurried home, and we were going to hop in the truck. Before we could leave our house, we got the call. My dad said, through tears, I think she's gone. So we drove three hours to get there. When we got there, her body was still there. My dad asked us, do you want to see her? Now, friends, I haven't been around death like that ever. I don't know when the last time you saw someone dead like I've been to a funeral and I've seen like, with the makeup and the hair done and it's different that when you see somebody who's literally, their, their spirit has left their body. And when I saw her, I said, that's not her. That's not my mom. She's not here anymore. Right? So when we say that Jesus died, like that word means something more to me today than it did a week ago. He really died. Like, really. His spirit left his body. He was just a corpse. He was cold. He was ice cold. There was nothing happening inside of him. But then, but then, early Sunday morning, breath comes back into dead lungs, the coldness of the skin begins to warm as the blood begins to pump again the heart begins to beat the muscles begin to twitch the eyes begin to open jesus stands up and comes out of a tomb as the angel says he's not here he's risen come and see the place where he lay come look It's real. He really died. And he really rose from the grave. I know some of you are like, man, I've heard this my whole life. You know, I've been around church. I've been to church. I've heard about the resurrection. I know, like, I know that's part of the story. But what does it mean for us? That's where I want to end today. What does that mean for you to say that he really rose from the grave? The first thing is that a real savior isn't a human creation. I mean, that's what my professor was espousing to us. Ancient people who didn't have the scientific understanding that we have, they were superstitious, and they didn't know how to describe things, and so they made up this thing called God And then eventually, they added this whole Jesus thing. And you're a fool, and you're an idiot if you buy that, because now you're modern, scientific, Western thinkers. That's what he was saying. This is a human creation. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, he writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it happen. We didn't shape the story. The story's been shaping us. In fact, we were really slow to believe. We doubted, the women came and they told us and it sounded like nonsense to us until we saw him. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see, Jesus is the real savior, meaning he's not a myth, he's not an idea, he's not a philosophical amalgamation, he's not some epic creation of ancient imagination. Humanity didn't create him, rather he created humanity. He's the real savior, not a human creation. The second thing that it means for us is that a real savior is the standard of truth. You need to understand that. A real savior is the standard of truth. If you claim to be God and then live an extraordinary life full of love and truth and, and like true holiness, and then you heal like thousands of people and teach with authority, and then tell us all, hey, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to raise from the dead three days later, and then you do it, guess what? Whatever you say goes from now on, right? We're listening to you now. You're the standard of truth. Recently, somebody asked for my personal pastoral pastoral opinion about uh, you know, believers that are leaving the historic Christian biblical doctrines for. Doctrines that are are way more palatable for our culture. They wanted my pastoral opinion. And I said, I don't really have a pastoral opinion about that. I have a very, like, street-level opinion. Is Jesus real or not? That's it. Is it imaginary water? Or not? Because if he's Lord... And if he rose from the dead, then he's the standard of truth, which means that I don't come to him and say, Lord, here's what I want to be true about the world and about life. Do you fit? Because I'm with you if you're cool with all this. It's the opposite. We say, no, no, Jesus, I'm with you because you're the risen king. And whatever you say, I'm going to go with that because you really rose. You are the standard of truth. We must settle his lordship for ourselves before we ever settle our opinions on X, Y, Z matter. Whatever thing is on your radar, whatever hot button topic you're thinking about, like if you just settle the lordship of Jesus, start from there and then begin to work into, okay, now here's what he says. Now here's what I believe. You're gonna wind up in truth. But if you start on the other end, there, there is a Jesus that is a human creation, amen? There are lots of YouTube videos you can go watch. And they're full of great communicators. And they will tell you of a revisionist version of Jesus that fits things together and, and it just feels way more palatable to us. But I don't think his disciples, his closest friends, were beheaded, crucified upside down, martyred, thrown off a building, stabbed to death, burned at stakes. I don't think they endured that because they fit it all into Jesus for the people of their time. You don't get killed for making it all fit. You get killed for saying Jesus is the standard truth. He's the risen and real king. The third thing I think we understand is that having a real savior must mean that we really need saving. Baseline. Why would he do it if we didn't need it? Why would the father send his son to be crucified and die, like really die, and then raise again if we didn't need that? There was a, a series of commercials a few years ago put out by Febreze, and the concept was nose blind. I, I, have y'all seen that before? Nose blind? In fact, I think I have a picture right there if you, if you recall. These were genius ads. And this one, it says Jimmy has gotten used to his whole room smelling like sweaty odors. Yep, he's gone nose blind. He thinks it smells fine, but his mom smells this, right? Everything looks like a big sweaty sock, right? It's a whole like slew of them. One of the commercials features the definition of nose blind. It says, adjective, unable to recognize foul smells, one has grown accustomed to. Unable to recognize foul smells one has grown accustomed to. And of course, it's a genius ad because everyone's like, man, I think there are odors in my house, but I can't smell them. So I'm going to go and I'm going to buy Febreze just in case, right? Genius on their part. But I was thinking about this is actually a beautiful metaphor for our spiritual lives. Psalm 19, the psalmist writes, who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule over me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's the Febreze prayer for the spiritually nose blind. He's like, Lord, I've got some stuff going on inside of me. There's hidden faults. I don't even know. I'm nose blind. I can't even smell myself anymore. But Lord, you know, you see. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. My Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. He confesses. He can't even smell himself. I think that we're like that. When it comes to, like, our own sins and, like, our own need for God and our own need for salvation, I think we just kind of, we're just nose blind. We just can't even see it. we, We don't even smell it anymore. And we think of God, we have these cheap notions of grace that he chuckles at our sins and he sweeps them under the rug, like, ha, 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 he's a good guy, though. She's a good gal. We feel like. We don't really need saving. But why would Jesus do it if we didn't need it? You see, the realness of the cross rescues us from these cheap notions of grace. That he really died out there for us. That our sins really cost him that. And he loves us so much. Grace was costly. Sin has a real cost to us. And if we reject him, and we, just like my mom did last week, when we enter, when, we, when our spirit leaves this shell, we will stand before him. And friends, when you stand before him, I just, I just so desperately want you to be covered in the blood of Jesus, to be, to be known by God to where he says, come into my kingdom. I want it so bad for you. A real savior points to our real need for saving. His resurrection fills us with real hope. I want to close with a story. It's a really personal story, okay? But it has a lot to do with this. On March 2nd, I got the phone call from my dad that it was time to call in hospice. He had been... He was, to the end, her 24-7 caretaker. She needed him every 15 to 20 minutes, 24-7. So we knew, yeah, that's the right call. He needed to help with meds and all the things that he was trying to figure out. But that call felt like we're all saying that we know where this is headed. Like we're, we're saying this is the end. And that day was incredibly emotional for me as I began to just imagine like life without my mom, my, my greatest cheerleader, the one who would call me and encourage me to think about her not being there, think about my children whose mama would not be in their lives anymore. And so my heart was just breaking. I'm, I'm just weeping that day. And that evening, I had to go pick up my oldest son from practice uh, a- after school. And I get in the car and I start driving there and I'm still just like weeping, I'm a mess and I'm like, I can't be a mess when he gets in the car. Parents, I don't know if you've ever had that moment before. You're like, pull it together, kids are here, right? And so I'm, I'm sitting in that parking lot and I turn on the radio and there's a song on called Waymaker. I don't know if y'all, y'all know the song Waymaker. We do it here sometimes. Beautiful song. And I don't know how to explain this, and you might think I'm nuts, and that's okay. But the presence of God came into that Ford F-150 in the most overwhelming way. I don't know if you've ever, ever experienced the presence of God before, but I went from like weeping to like ecstatic praise in like 0.2 seconds. Like, I, I don't know how to explain it. And in that moment, I just sensed, in my spirit not an audible voice but i sense the lord say 20 more and i'm thinking 20 more years okay god's gonna do something miraculous and so i go home i have this peace in my heart i tell casey about what's happened and two days later we drive to round rock and we pray for my mom and i said i just feel like we're supposed to pray for 20 more 20 more Years. And so we did. And I got one eye open while I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, like something crazy is about to happen in this room. I'm just waiting for like fire to fall or some, you know, something amazing, right? And then we end the prayer and say amen. It's just kind of like a normal prayer time. And I'm like, okay. The Lord's, the Lord's working. We go home. And her condition just goes down and down and down and down. The Sunday night before she passed away, I was just mad at God. Have you ever been mad at God before? Like where you say, Lord, I thought you said 20 more. I thought you said 20 more. I'm such an idiot. I'm such a fool. To walk into that room and say, I feel like we're supposed to pray for 20 more. Where were you at, God? And then I begin to spiral down. I'm thinking of all the decisions I've made because I felt like the Lord was leading me. Planning a church? Hello? (laughs) That was one of them. And I'm thinking, I stand in front of people like you, and I say, the Lord is real. The Lord's at work. He speaks to us, right? And I ended that prayer, and I said, Lord, I'm so frustrated with you, but all I want is you. I, I'm, I'm angry, but I know you're the answer. You're all I want. There's nothing else. Like, if you're not real, I have nothing else left, because you're, all, you're it for me. I ended the prayer that way. The next day, I told Casey about my angry prayer with God. She said, well, what day was it that you feel like the Lord spoke to you? So I got on my phone. I found the day. I was like, it was March 2nd. Okay. The next day, March 23rd, my mom passed away. You see, I thought the Lord was telling me 20 more years, but he was preparing me for 20 more full days with my mom. He was, he was speaking. I just wasn't interpreting it correctly correctly but he was letting me know I had 20 more full days with my mom. The reason I share that with you and take the risk of you thinking I'm a total nut job, which you might, and that's okay, is that I want you to know that the absence of Jesus from the tomb means the presence of Jesus in real life. That's the story that we just read. He keeps showing up to women on their way, to disciples in Galilee, to 500 other brothers and sisters that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 15. People that he says, go ask them. Don't believe me. They all saw it. He shows up to Paul on a road to Damascus. He shows up to a hurting son in a parking lot in Rosenberg, Texas. He keeps showing up. verse 9 Jesus met them verse 17 when they saw him his absence from the tomb means his presence in real life I also share this with you to echo back to you God's invitation into a real relationship with a real Savior and it's real because he's risen and it's also real because sometimes it's full of frustration in angry prayers in in moments where we say god if you're real because it's a real relationship but i want you to know that a real savior can handle the real stuff that you're facing whatever that may be and lastly i share that with you because i got to stand before our friends, and our family. And with full confidence and peace in my heart, I could say, my mom is totally healed. Fully healed. She's well. She's in the presence of love. She's enveloped by mercy, and love, in peace, in life. She is alive. Because he is alive. It's real hope. A real savior means real hope. So, do you have real hope like that? Do you have a real relationship with Jesus? Is there water in your cup? I just want to encourage you, don't delay. Don't put it off for another day. Because a real risen Savior stands ready to save today. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.